welcome to anyone who ends up listening to this. My name is uh, Wiston. I'm a teacher in training in the unified mindfulness system of Shinzen Young. Um, and I'm starting up this podcast, uh, attempting to have interesting conversations that I would like to have anyway. Um, and this uh, is really just an excuse for me to talk to interesting people and get to know a little bit more about them, what they're working on, uh, and follow, follow my interests uh, and figure out where that all goes um, with a special focus on uh, comparative mysticism, uh, philosophy, religion, meditation, um, and how all of that intersects with contemporary cognitive science, neuroscience, and philosophy of mind. It's kind of where most of my interests lie these days and have for a while. Uh, and so here we have my inaugural guest, Dave Collins. You nice can say a few to words. be with you. Sounds, sounds like a podcast I'd like to listen to. Um, my own interests overlap strongly in that uh, put only a little tritely, I'm interested in those experiences that mean most to people in their lives. And I'm most interested in a very engaged, practical way. And so in concrete uh, consequence or manifestation, I'm interested in meditation practices, contemplative traditions generally, and at a somewhat intellectual side of things, I'm interested in cross-cultural parallels. There are, of course, lots and lots of kinds of meditation, but it's not hard to find folks in different parts of the world doing very similar practices. And that just tickles my mind, gives me heart for, gives me hope for our species. And Bottom line, I'm most interested of all in actually doing the practices. I uh, tell this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually true. I've got graduate degrees in both religious studies, some focus on Buddhism, and uh, clinical psychology, and have had advisors in each field, religious studies and psychology, who were pretty sure my interest would be better suited in the other field. Those experiences that mean most to us. Is that psychology? Is that religion? It's also somewhat prompted me to look at a little bit of the history of those words and those fields. But um, in the end, again, I have a very pragmatic, very uh, practical focus and orientation. I want to understand this stuff and I want to practice it. Yeah, that, that, that comes through from what I've seen you post on, on Twitter and what I've, I've read from your academic and, and you know, less scholarly publications. Um, that's why I wanted to reach out and uh, talk to you, get to know you a little better and because our, our interests seem to overlap quite a bit. Um, that's my sense, yeah. Uh, and you know my uh, where where the rubber hits the road for me personally, I suppose I'm I'm the son of a of a priest and a psychotherapist, so I was doing okay. from the start. <laughs> okay, <laughs> never had a chance. Uh, um, I guess where I wanted to start, and we'll we'll see where things go from there, is maybe you could speak uh, to uh, what brought you to have this kind of interest in. The experiences that matter most to people, and as I've been reading uh, or rereading some of your your material, um, specifically the the first chapter, the draft chapter of the, the book you're working on, as a love letter to your daughter, which is just a, a, a lovely way to frame it. Uh, it was really touching um, to read, and I'm looking forward to the finished version if it ever comes to fruition. Um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether you could relate, um, you know, in in brief. The, the kind of central experience that takes place in that uh, first chapter. Um, and I, I imagine, although you don't say it explicitly, that I remember that that was quite important in the course of your, your life going forward uh, in, and in what you chose to study. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
in ways it's um, it's a convenience to speak about this experience. I'll, I'll relate in a moment, but you're right. It, it was it was pretty pivotal. Um, so when I'm seven years old, I go through what it's like to die in a near drowning. I was underwater long enough in a crowded pool, but no one saw me go down uh, until my brother happened to uh, notice. He was interested in the toy, the float I was using. He was trying to find me and mentioned to my, mentioned to our mother that I appeared to be on the bottom of the pool. The, uh, my mom screams, lifeguard jumps in, pulls me out. I'd been under long enough that I'd gone through what it's like to die that way. I'd lost consciousness. And as I'm being resuscitated and my poor mother, she's medically trained and the signs weren't good. I didn't look good, but the mouth to mouth resuscitation worked eventually. I started breathing again. I came back to consciousness. I woke up um, and as I'm waking up, everything hurts. Everything hurts. I'm throwing up watery vomit through my mouth and nose into vomit that's already there in the grass before I had regained consciousness. And it was beautiful. Smelly, painful, distressed, and it was wonderful. The fact that anything at all was happening before I could remember my name, before I booted up the cognitive realization, oh, this means I didn't die. Later years, I'll study contemplative traditions and the image of the Buddha when asked on the night of his awakening, by what authority, by what reason uh, does he purport to wake up? And he just reaches down and touches the earth. What's always already true before we have a philosophy, before we have a religion, before we have a psychological framework, what's always already here. I had the good fortune to be stripped of my identity, to be stripped of my thoughts and percepts, preferences, preoccupations. And it's just me and the grass. <laughs> And that anything at all was there was its own worth and wonder. At a somewhat uh, intellectual uh, angle um, that helped me in later years to, to, to discern, or, or it made sense to me that there's a distinction between pain. Pain is life. I was in pain and I was enjoying it. There's a distinction between pain and suffering. Suffering is a drag. Suffering, uh, to be oversimple, has our added evaluation. This isn't appropriate. I don't want this. All the kind of relationship or um, framework interpretation we put onto discomfort. Um, and as I also mentioned in that, that, that writing I'm doing, I had in effect the... Uh, privilege of uh, growing up as a kid with a best friend who was very alive and helped remind me to be appreciative of life because he knew he was dying. He had leukemia um, and it still blows me away. He was just a little kid. We meet when we're five or six and um, <laughs> the first words he was a friend of a neighbor kid they his mom had come to visit the neighbor kid's mom and so i meet him they're playing in the carport and he's on crutches and his first words to me were i'm a lucky dog <laughs> and he reaches into his shirt pocket and pulls out 
seven little cork stoppers. And for some reason, cork stoppers were inherently cool and he had seven of them. So yeah, he was definitely lucky. Um, but that was kind of sort of his orientation. He knew as the years went on um, that this isn't forever. He was dying. Um, he was smart, he was popular, but he did pass a month short of his 13th birthday. So those sorts of um, experiences conjoined with, um, on, on, the, on the less uh, uh, welcome side of things, um, I had uh, an upbringing where I was expected to be a kind of intellectual superstar. And um, I wasn't treated so well in many regards. Um, and so it had an effect on me, it had a number of effects on me, but one was to um, be a bit, um, unenthusiastic about automatically accepting other person's perceptions of me. I'm always questioning things and I'm questioning my own sorts of assumptions and uh, presumptions about what's possible, about who I am. So I grew up both oriented towards appreciating what life can be, which then turns into just uh, a West, I'll go ahead and use that word, to be in touch with what life is before I have a philosophy about it necessarily, as well as um, the sort of um, readiness to not take anything too glibly or facilely, always kind of questioning things. And so it resonates for me as I um, end up a freshman in college and get to take a course in Buddhism. <laughs> I was raised uh, Southern Baptist, and there are ways in which in later life, I finally get around to looking at some Southern Baptist theology and am amused at how much it had shaped the spiritual organization I set up later. My version of a Buddhist sitting group had no vestments, little distinction between um, leadership and uh, everybody else strong uh, orientation towards conscience and um, personal experience. All of those are also a part of the healthier side of uh, Southern Baptist independent spiritual Christian uh, practice and organization. However, there was also this, this sort of um, uh, Oh, encouragement not to ask too many questions. <laughs> it's, it could be quite dogmatic. Um, and so it was refreshing as a uh, young college student to encounter the Buddha as, as portrayed in the Kalama Sutra. The Kalamas were a, a village, a group of people, um, and the Buddha's teaching there, and they're saying, hold up. We've had a lot of teachers come here and say this and say that. Why are we to invest in what you're saying? Now, this is a very rough paraphrase, but it really was a help to me. Having been raised the way I had, having the sort of questioning orientation that I had for the Buddha to respond by saying, again, in paraphrase, this is the way it is, folks. And whatever you do, don't take my word for it go look, go practice, and allow yourself to be embraced by only what you find in your own experience to be healthy and wholesome and useful. So I studied um, um, psychology and um, religious studies and did a lot of meditation, a lot of meditation. Um, so that's a little bit of my, my kind of 
how I come to these sorts of interests or topics. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. You're a, you're a really gifted storyteller. You can really thread a narrative together. Um, it was a pleasure to be, you know, guided along that. Uh, the Kalama Sutta, one of my favorites as well. Um, so it's almost, it's almost one of the, the suttas on which a lot of uh, modern Buddhist converts, uh, you know, their, their, their faith, their engagement with, with Buddhism religiously. It's almost the sutta on which that depends for a lot of people. Um, for myself, I, I count myself among, among those people. And you may know that that reminds me, um, there are ways, so, so I'm, uh, I'll be 65 this year. So I was a somewhat precocious child of the 60s. Uh, by the time I get to college, disco <laughs> was the dominant form and the hippies were tired and had gone home. Um, so that was a fair disappointment. But um, the Beatles, of course, had done some meditation, transcendental meditation. And um, uh, so I looked up those folks. I had found in the Reader's Digest, that font of uh, wisdom and spiritual guidance, a summary of a book by Dr. Herbert Benson, who I later met um, um, on what he called the relaxation response, how to evoke this kind of meditation uh, experience based on his own understanding and study of uh, TM people. Um, and I'll add a little story here. Um, I had been doing meditation on my own based on largely on that and like Herman Hesse books. Um, but I wanted a, a formal introduction. I wanted a, an initiation and I looked up the uh, TM people when I got to college. And in the little puja, little ceremony they have, I receive a mantra and I'm doing meditation. And there's this realization, I've been here before. Mm thinking about stuff uh, isn't of course the uh, intent or the mode for your experience while meditating so I, I let that go but afterwards after the sitting I, I reflect on it I've been here before and I realized even though the Southern Baptists aren't into magic um, the Lord's Supper as they call it is a commemoration the baptism by immersion is an outward public sign of an inward decision, so to speak. But something, as it were, magical happened for me when I was immersed as a kid. I went somewhere. And it was that same place I touched in the kind of intimacy and quiet and honesty and open-heartedness of the uh, meditation practice. forgetting where I was going with that. You've got some construction going on in the background. Uh, There's life, that. life happens, life intrudes. We'll, uh, we'll make do. Um, I, oh, I think it's, that it's, prompts uh, a quick, fun little story. I've yet to uh, uh, realize this in a very uh, full way, but I'm reminded uh, Jack Cornfield tells a story when he was a young monk um, and was sort of embraced by the... Uh, uh, the, the Theravadan folks, Ajahn Chah, teachers there. He's in a monastery, and early on, he's invited to speak with the, the teacher. And the teacher asks him how, how things are going. And Jack says, um, they're going pretty well, but I got to say, this is a surprisingly noisy place. You know the story. I know this story. I spent some time at monasteries in Ajahn Chah's lineage, but you should, awesome. tell, you should tell it. Awesome. So the young Jack is talking to the teacher. This is a surprising, no, surprisingly noisy place. And I got to say, the, the noises are bothering me. And his teacher says, oh, I rather suspect it is you that is bothering the noises. <laughs> <laughs> Leave them alone. Don't bother them. Uh, it's a great, uh, great reversal. <laughs> and, and, and of course, yeah, yeah. So, so much of it comes out in that story that we can have sort of set expectations. We can have identity invested sort of reasons 
for why we're motivated to be meditators. Um, there's a Sufi story where uh, there's a caravan and a wealthy merchant has lost a favorite camel. And he's offering a reward for anyone that uh, uh, can help him find the camel. And this conniving fella gets in his head a way to, to get the, find the camel. And that is to say that he too has lost a camel, a very similar description. Please help me find it. So he's looking to find the merchant's camel and, and cash in on the reward. And he does find the camel and realizes when he sees it, that is his camel. <laughs> <laughs> and so I like that as a um, sort of suggestion. There are ways people can get out of balance. There's critique of mindfulness and things like this. But it's very much my sense and experience that even having a kind of ulterior motive or having a little bit of a skewed conceptualization of what meditation is about, there are many types, but there's, there's, there's a great prospect for meditation to have a kind of self-writing quality. You can have so getting into it, but meditation is gonna gonna usher you towards a kind of honesty and intimacy and presence. I've got a ridiculous amount of education, uh, two master's degrees, a PhD, and I'm still learning. You get these various um, teachings, these aphorisms, these characterizations of spiritual experience or, or meditation, what it's all about. And I'm still finding myself saying, oh, <laughs> that's what they mean. <laughs> and, and that's I guess, uh, what that's about. <laughs> I guess when that stops happening, you, you, you probably know, you, you better look again. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. All right. Uh, I think that is uh, just, just a wonderful, you know, kind of introduction bio with some uh, colorful stories along the way. Um, just going from my notes here. Um, it, I think this ties back to something you've already said, that there, there is something, um, a kind of what could be referred, referred to as a, a common core to right. mystical experiences across traditions, across cultures, across time. Um, and this is sometimes called you know, uh, a perennialism. And it's, I understand, though I'm not a scholar of religion, that this is a very hotly debated uh, issue. Um, you know, are the, uh, are the cultural, uh, intellectual, philosophical trappings surrounding a mystical experience? Uh, I don't know. Is the mystical experience inevitably contaminated by those such that any meaningful comparison between traditions can't actually be made? Uh, and I get the sense that uh, you're of the opinion that no, you know, you actually can. Uh, yeah. we, we're, we're human beings. Uh, we have a similar biology, psychology, perceptual system. And these, these experiences that matter most to us um, are going to, you know, at their core, at the base, at the foundation, um, or, or lack of foundation, whatever it may be, uh, are going to be quite similar. Yeah. You can find lots of styles of uh, meditation techniques and spiritual experiences. Um, and of course, they are different. There's a, there's a variety. But at a kind of core, um, there is a style of practice, which is, I've always used some of these words, kind of an embodiment of an honesty. It is a letting go of words. I, I like it so much that in Middle English, the way you spelled the word concept was C-O-N-C-E-I-T, a conceit. Literally conceit. Letting go of our conceits, coming to rest. Now I'm, I'm, I'm using words from the, the Christian contemplative work, um, Middle English. Uh, so middle, late 1300s, uh, the cloud of unknowing. Um, he didn't sign his name, the author, 
Um, but that, and this, uh, to my mind, a little unfortunate how fancy the words are for these very basic, humble even types of cultivation of, of presence and immediacy and open-hearted, open-minded uh, uh, presence and, and honesty. So among the terms, uh, via negativa spirituality or apophatic mysticism, um, it's about cultivating, in his words, um, a naked, blind feeling of being. That word feeling in Middle English can extend to uh, experience, awareness, even consciousness. But I like the simplicity of that phrasing, a naked, blind feeling of being. That's all that's called for. A most simple mode of experiencing, a most simple uh, intimacy with, with life, being there. Um, in his case, you get um, a growth. He modifies his instruction, a subtle but important way. In the cloud of unknowing, he talks about uh, cultivating a naked intent or a blind love as the kind of orientation towards what's most fundamentally real. As a Christian, he's going to name that reality God, the divine is that in which we're all embedded and of which we're all an expression, a creative manifestation. But he doesn't go too much with the theological uh, elaborations. He's all about an experiential practice, cultivating a naked intent and a blind love to connect with something before words. That's why he calls it unknowing, to let go of your conceits and be all the more present, be all the more connected to the living moment by not having a lot of opinions about it, but in effect, allowing it to inform you in a sequel. So he's writing this as a letter to um, a younger student who's asked him for guidance. And um, the student has some questions after the first uh, installment. And so he goes back and he writes something called the Book of Privy Counseling, which is kind of like the book of uh, intimate instruction. And there's this subtle shift from where initially he talks about a naked love and a blind intent, which has, um, you know, a kind of directionality to it, a, an intentionality to it, a subject looking to uh, find or experience an object. Um, he shifts it subtly from naked intent and a blind love to a naked, blind feeling of being. Something all the more immediate. Again, the words get over fancy, something more thoroughly ontological rather than intentional, rather than conceptual, um, rather than a travel to. It's, it's, it's a, 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 a allowing to be held by what's already here, what's already true. So he makes this little shift. On the other side of the world, Dogen in Japan has gone to China to learn from the source uh, Zen teaching and Zen practice. And he comes back to Japan. So he's 13th century and inaugurates, put into motion the, the Soto style of, of Zen practice in Japan, um, which ends up being a most populous and popular form of, of Zen Buddhist practice in Japan. Very different part of the world, different culture, different theological vocabulary, and a very similar practice what he calls the practice of, of, of suchness, of as it isness, 
of, of their reasons, uh, kind of conceptual philosophical reasons, he's not going to call it being because the Buddhists are so appreciative of, of how much it's process, how much this is an activity, how much it's not a, about a substance that we are or have. Um, and being can kind of run philosophically into that vocabulary of, of substance. But he's going to talk about suchness or as it isness. And he writes two versions of his initial meditation instructions, the Fukan Zazengi. And in the first version, he had, there are several examples, I'll just give one. He says, if you want to attain suchness, urgently work at Zazen. So Zazen is an instrument, and I'm going to feed into it a little bit, an, in, uh, an, an intentional activity to achieve suchness. You've got a tool to get you somewhere. So to me, that's like a naked intent. You're going to urgently, sincerely engage in Zazen technique in order to arrive at a realization of suchness. Very subtle change, but it's the same change that the cloud author realized. He changes, if you want to realize suchness, urgently work at Zazen, to if you want to realize suchness, practice suchness. <laughs> <laughs> you're already what you're seeking. The fact that you're able to seek is already part of the miracle. In his famous work, again, Joe Koan, he has an image. And again, it's, 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 it's language that, that is you know, informed by, by Buddhist parlance and Buddhist philosophy. But he speaks of, um, again, this is somewhat in paraphrase, that um, if we um, you know, bring ourselves to bear on the dharmas, if we bring ourselves to bear on the constituents of life. If we bring ourselves to bear on the way things are, there's gonna be delusion. When, however, things as they are, bring themselves to bear on us, there's awakening. So my sense is there, it's an invitation to, to allow what's already true, ourselves as a participant expression we participate in and we come from the grass in front of our face life as it is we're a part of that um i'll, I'll pause there i've got a couple other stories and experiences that that, that link up but yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pause there yeah I have, a, I have an interesting interjection, which may turn into a, a significant digression. We'll see. Uh, there, there is this contrast in different mystical traditions in, you know, between and within Buddhist traditions that I'm most familiar with of uh, the goal, awakening. Is it a uh, capacity to be developed, um, uh, an innate potential to be realized, or is it something that is, in fact, already present uh, at the base, in fact, constituting the basis of your, your consciousness, the, the awakening that you seek is in fact latent within all of experience. Um, yet uh, through habitual tendencies, perceptions and grasping, um, you fail to realize it like, a, like the sun behind the clouds, which yet still shines and in fact illuminates the clouds. And yet you are ignorant of the sun's existence, yet the sun still shines. And this uh, kind of cashes out practically um, in, uh, in practice traditions as uh, debates between, uh, you know, you must exert yourself forcefully without, you know, without fail and without ceasing, you know, practice day and night as if your hair is on fire. It's uh, an admonition from the Buddha himself. Uh, there's, this, there's this contrast between uh, really quite forceful striving uh, and then also, uh, especially in later Buddhist tradition um, of this emphasis it's already here. You just need to open, uh, relax, and appreciate. And for myself in my own practice, I found that uh, these aren't, in fact, mutually incompatible. 
and that one can support uh, very helpfully the other. You can strive mightily and then open and relax or open and relax and then uh, strive once more. Um, I'll, uh, I'll stop there. Any comments? Ah, you're, you're muted. Yeah, I'm reminded of a um, obnoxious little Zen saying that is um, uh, awakening is an accident. And our practice makes us accident prone. Great line. Um, and in my own life, um, a really good teacher, very uh, not 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 flashy, sort of a Jewish grandpa of a Zen teacher, student of Suzuki Roshi, uh, Mel Weitzman, was uh, an abbot at San Francisco Zen Center, and then a longtime abbot of his own home temple uh, in Berkeley, Berkeley Zen Center. And um, in a uh, shosan, a question, a, a question answer a ceremony at the end of an intensive silent uh, retreat, Maseshin, Zen retreat, um, we have this little ceremony where we take turns uh, individually in front of everybody, standing in front of the teacher and, and posing a question. And in my turn, I was working with this issue of, 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 of effort and uh, the sense it's always already there and ways in which our effort can tangle ourselves up. Uh, we can lose appreciative connection with the fact that which makes the effort is what the whole game is about, is, is, is the miracle already. And so I quote a, 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 a lines portion of a Zen story between a student, uh, Zhao Zhou, who had become a wonderful teacher in his own right later. But when he's a student, his teacher was Nanchuan. And um, uh, in their discussion, um, he's asking how to, to, to practice, how to seek realization. And uh, Nanchuan at one point says, if you try to approach it, you'll miss it. Another translation, if you try to approach it, you'll go away from it. So I, I cite that part of the story to uh, Mel in this question answer. If we try to approach it and it's gonna fit for me, that was one of the wonderful things about Mel. Not flashy, but he could see where you were and, and, and say something helpful, supportive. So I cite that line. Nanchuan says, if you try to approach it, you'll miss it. So what are we to do? Mel said, don't try so hard. <laughs> and in the place I was in, the moment that was occurring, that helped me. That got through. And in gratitude, I smile, I soften up, I bow. And Mel says, like that. <laughs> so, yeah, in Zen and, and all, all the contemplative traditions, they have this sort of um, naked presence, um, simple, deeply humble um, honesty as the sort of core practice and realization. Um, you'll often have that sort of apparent paradox. Um, and so in, in Zen, they'll speak of things like, um, uh, the way is basically easy, or the way, the Tao, the, the living truth, the awakened reality of which we're all participant expressions, the way does not require cultivation. You don't have to create it. It's always already here. Just don't contrive. Ooh, that last part though, that's, that's a difficult one. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't, it though? isn't it though, isn't it though? Just don't make stuff up. Just don't uh, lean to your own conceit is the way the uh, cloud author would put it. Don't, don't, don't depend so much on your concepts, but look at the grass, touch the ground, allow yourself to be 
expressed by what's always already true. Yeah, that's there's a there's a theme in in unified mindfulness. There are practices where we actually attempt to uh, get in contact with that quality of uh, spontaneity in in motor expression. It's kind of Shinzen's best attempt to uh, try to proceduralize uh, the location of that that spring of 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 the living activity that is actually what's you know moving these lips, what's seeing I, these sights. Uh, I, it's something I, I really appreciate about about Shinzen, just as a as a human being, but also about the system he's created, is that uh, for for someone with a probably uh, hyper hyper developed technical appreciation for things, um, something really very simple that's too simple to approach for someone with a mind like mine, uh, most of the time, uh, with uh, with some pointed instruction. Oh, well, there it is. Some some pointers, some habituation. All all, all these skillful means that uh, different traditions and different teachers have to point out what's already there. I'm reminded. I've I've used that uh, image, or I've uh, alluded to that business about the near drowning and and the grass, um, somewhat more than I'm used to. But uh, with your last comment, I'm reminded of a a, a Zen story. Um, where where the Buddha has just given a, a lovely uh, Dharma talk. He's given a sermon, and people some people got awoke, woke up, and uh, uh, one of the, the members of the, the congregation says, uh, "We should build a temple here." And the god, the 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 angel Indra, jumps down, plants a piece of grass and says the temple is built. <laughs> that's, that's lovely. It uh, reminds me of the, some of the final panels in the Oxfording pictures. Yes. Uh, after, after emptiness, what's there? There's, there's, a, there's cherry, cherry blossoms and a return to the market. Yeah. Nothing so special there, y'all, but, yeah. uh, but experienced it differently. And I'm going to uh, uh, um, share uh, a somewhat more esoteric sort of experience. So much of the so-called via negativa um, in the West is about a simplicity and an honesty and having a relationship with our experiencing. And of course, so much of Buddhism is that as well. Um, and the stories we've, we've uh, shared with um, Zen teachings uh, are just being intimate with the miracle that's always already this. Um, I'll allow myself a quick academic note. Um, I don't speak Japanese. Oh, I tried to learn, but it, it didn't happen. Um, but the word Zen is the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese Chan, which is a shortening of, of the Chinese Chan Na, which is the Chinese uh, pronunciation of the Sanskrit jhana. And so the Zen school, the Chan school are the meditation school. Chan, Zen, jhana came to mean um, meditation, mental cultivation, I think is a tag that jhana, the older Sanskrit often gives. But in um, South Asian Buddhism, old school Buddhism, Theravada, uh, jhana was the word used for um, synesthesias, for absorption states, and pronounced in Pali, jhana. Um, the jhanas are remarkable. They're altered states. A lot of uh, practice, and, and there's debates too about you know, why get altered? Everything is already this, let's just have a relationship, which is in fact my own core practice and orientation, but learning what the mind is capable of through these altered states. And there's a range, um, some just sort of uh, sweetness feelings to uh, what's taught in the Visuddhi Maga, altered modes of functioning. That's what I, 
learned. The, the full-on altered states, they're just astonishing what the mind is capable of. All of that is quick background, and there's much, much more. There's a tedious amounts of, <laughs> especially the, the Masudi manga, just anyway, how articulated that is and how careful they are about, um, um, you know, discerning the, 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 the factors that make up phenomenal uh, states like that. Phenomenal in both senses of remarkable and just what is appearing, what experiences are what they're made of. Anyway, the form jhana sequence, remarkable, very distinctive and unfold in a set pattern. The form jhanas, the way I learned them come in four. And the uh, following one 10 day intensive retreats, um, being in that lovely synesthetic altered place time and time and time again. I go home and for a period of about five weeks, I was waking up at night out of dreamless sleep in the middle of the sequence. Some part of me was doing the jhanas while some part of me was doing sleep. I've had other experiences of like doing meditation during a dream. Um, you know, typically I become lucid when I'm sitting in the meditation chair. Oh, look at what's going on here. Look at where I am. But this is this was another deal. I wasn't dreaming, but the jhana states were unfolding. And that's all a long-winded background to saying that has provided me a really precious appreciation for how our waking thinking uh, deal is also a generated phenomenon. Our waking identity, our waking thoughts and plans and visualizations aren't the starting point. We're born into um, a display, a, um, a story. It's a wonderful story and we can't do without it. But I'm reminded of something I say of uh, a religious language. If you take religious language, and there's lots of kinds, but if you take religious language literally good chance you're not taking it seriously enough. If we take our waking perception as the starting point or as all there is, we're not fully appreciative of how wonderful this event actually is. Um, so we met on Twitter and you've likely seen, it's a favorite image. I use it a bunch, side-by-side uh, -side photographs of a flower, mm -hmm. um, primrose. And we see it as a pretty yellow flower. But when you take a photograph of that flower with film that is sensitive to ultraviolet, that registers UV wavelengths, there's a pattern in the UV. It makes it look like a, a kind of a star with a center. It makes it look like a target. Bumblebees can see ultraviolet. There's some speculation dogs and cats can see some. And that's another reason why they mark things with urine, that urine reflects UV. Mm. But bumblebees, honeybees, moths, butterflies, they can register ultraviolet. And so a lesson I take from that is how much our waking perception is a display, is a story, is to be slightly lyrical, a kind of poem. And that to my heart suggests it's all the more rich 
a poem, a song of which we are notes and lines. Um, yeah. Yeah, in the cloud author, um, he's mostly focused on this letting go business and this cultivating naked presence, but he does at least uh, at one point mention, by the way, when we're really established in that sort of simple, wakeful, heart-informed engagement with the miracle of being, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's everything we do. Nothing excluded. Nothing excluded. Everything becomes a poem, or in his language, everything becomes a prayer. Everything becomes a kind of walk. Where walking is worship. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, sacred outlook or pure perception. It's translated differently um, from uh, Indo-Tibetan traditions, where all sound is heard as mantra. Uh, all form is the display of your chosen meditational deity. Um, and uh, I recently uh, came across a clip from, um, I'd seen the movie years ago, but I, I, I'd returned uh, because some conversation triggered the memory of it, of a, uh, an elderly uh, Carthusian Catholic uh, monk uh, describing, uh, describing the way that he experiences the world as uh, entirely of God's will and that there is nothing uh, so wonderful and that in God, there is no time. There is no past. There, there's, there's, only, there's only the present. Only the, only the present pervades. That might be the language he uses, which is just wonderful. The, um, we don't know for sure, but the chances are uh, high that the anonymous author of The Cloud of Unknowing was a Carthusian. Um, do you know the movie uh, Into Great Silence? That's the movie. I forgot to reference it. That's what I'm talking oh, about. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely. It's just lovely. It's like, I don't know, two hours, 15 minutes. And, there's maybe, <laughs> and there may be 15 minutes of talk in the whole thing. It's just lovely. Oh. I mean... There's, there's a lot more we could talk about. I'm not sure how long we've been going. Um, maybe about an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose uh, maybe we're not going to do the topic justice in, uh, in the time that remains. Maybe maybe 10 or 15 more minutes if, if you're willing. Um, I'm willing and I'm totally open to getting together again sometime. This is, this is I'm enjoying it. A sequel, part two. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, perhaps as, a, as an appetizer then, um, and this is something that I'm, I'm chiefly concerned with uh, as, as someone for whom, you know, this is the most important thing in my life, these, these experiences, these practices, these, these traditions. Yeah. Uh, and yet I, uh, I've grown up in a, in a secular, mostly scientific materialist culture, um, a, you know, a naturalist, a philosophically and scientifically naturalist frame. How, does all of, how do all of these things fit? Or do they fit? In in my head, they they do fit. Um, there's there's not in fact any conflict. And interpretations and religious language, as you've said, can be uh, enjoyed as as poetry and not as uh, ontological or metaphysical descriptions. Um, of course, that's not that's not uh, how most of these things were taken. Uh, and I might uh, interject uh, with the reference to to naturalism. And a sort of empiricism. Um, I'm reminded how, for myself, it's totally uh, warranted. In fact, it's really needed that we ask of religious language, not as this true or false, right or wrong, not do I believe it or not, but, but how does this work? Operationalizing the constructs is a multisyllabic, rather highfalutin <laughs> phrase. But it fits, that it makes, it behooves us. This stuff is too important to take. Well, there are ways in which faith is an openness and an orientation and, and a heart willingness. Will, by the way, in Augustinian psychology was understood to be a movement of the heart. So I like to play with that 
sense of our intentions as potentially being an embodiment of a kind of heart movement or a love even. But um, to ask of religious language, and there's different kinds and different modes. There's then stories where two monks uh, are raising the blinds and the windows for the Zendo. And the teacher says, uh, Zen monk A has it, Zen monk B doesn't. They're doing the same thing. And again, to be a little technical, playful, um, so much of, of spirituality, so much of, of, of appreciating life, so much of uh, contemplative uh, activity is an adverbial thing, by which I mean it doesn't matter always what we do, but it is crucial how we do it, how we are the miracle that there is anything, how we are the fact that we are. Adverbs can modify one another. And so whatever you're doing, you can always uh, modify it as uh, doing lovingly. And I'm not sure, maybe we, I don't think we covered this. It was in my notes. It was one of the first things that seems to tie into, uh, I've seen you use this phrase in your writing, maybe on Twitter as well, to know like love what it is to be, a knowing that is like loving, uh, a profoundly intimate uh, connection without separation. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, tweak that a little. To know like love like what it is to be. To know like love like what it is to be. That's, that's an interesting modification. <laughs> Yeah, it's not particularly grammatical, <laughs> but it is a mode. So this, that expression came out of my attempt to, to give some sense of what it was like on the other side of nearly dying. Before I remember my name, I'm in pain, it's smelly, and there's a miracle going on. Really matter of fact, just the way things actually are is its own worth and wonder. And, and sort of struggling to give some words to that, some characterization of that. That's the phrasing that came to me, to know like love, like what it is to be. Where knowing and loving and being, they were a same life. They were a same truth. They were what was and what is if we notice <laughs> yes <laughs> and what will be uh, uh, and I'm, I'm reminded of the the quote and, and all manner of things shall be well yeah she uh so julian of norwich um is given showings she's having a series of visions and instructions through the visions. So she's, uh, in the fancy word, cataphatic. She's uh, embracive of form and uh, image. Um, down the street is the author of The Cloud of Unknowing. They're the same period of time. And he's apophatic. He's letting go. He's um, sort of allowing a uh, uh, clarity, a sobriety, a kind of uh, loving um, nakedness without the thoughts, without the theologies, without the, the, the stories or the images, something which, which expresses through him its own worth and wonder. Both folks are, I've got to think, profoundly um, blessed. Um, and in their different um, modalities or styles or poetries. Well, I, I, think, I think we're gonna have to have a, uh, a part two, perhaps. Uh, discussing more um, how, how all of these, these the, the, how all of this poetry um, 
could be interpreted within a, a naturalistic mode, another form of poetry go. with with different uses, perhaps. Yeah, maybe by next time we'll have it all figured out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I doubt that. Um, but uh, thank you so much, Dave. It's uh, been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it, Mr. <laughs>